Hello, greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual things, and thank you for the gift of spending time with us as we explore uh, more of what God has made known in Scripture. My name is Ethan. We're work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles, California. If you've spent a little bit of time in the New Testament, you're aware that there are many letters that are written. And at the very end of some of these letters, we have these sections of greetings. And for us today, we might wonder why they're there. You know, uh, they're all these names, all these people, we have no idea who they are, right? Uh, but why are they there? And how are they actually really important glimpses for us into the life of early Christians? And specifically, how can the greetings that Paul has to the Christians in Rome uh, really help us understand how we should regard one another and treat one another in our faith? Let us consider to this end Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord as in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, Paul's actually following a standard procedure in Roman letter writing. And this is when it's really important to remember that as much as the New Testament is of great importance to our faith and kind of provides the way forward for us, it wasn't written to us. It was written to specific audiences in specific contexts. And this section here in Romans helps really brings that to light because we're meeting here the very people that, G that Paul's writing to, at least some of them. Now, it shows us also, we can't greet Prisca, Aquila, Urbanus, or the others, right? They've gone on long before us. And so that helps kind of temper some of our uh, in ways that we understand interpretation, uh, that we certainly are to, to observe many of the commands of the New Testament and embody the examples found in the New Testament. But we understand that some of them are just simply things we cannot do, but we can learn from them and that can inform and, and shape and adapt how we do do things uh, and the way that we look perhaps at one another and how we treat one another. Now, Paul wrote his letter to these Christians in Rome somewhere 54 to 57 from Corinth. Uh, we can see that later on in verse 23 that he, uh, uh, the Gaius is host to him in the whole church, and Erastus, the city treasurer, greets them. These are people we meet in, in the Corinthian correspondence. And he's spent all this time with various uh, theological concerns and practical concerns, and now he's making a very important direct and intimate connection here. And we see this abundance of names far more than we see in any other letter because he has not been to Rome. 
He said that from the very beginning. He wants to go to Rome. He's intending to go to Rome. He's not been to Rome. And so it becomes all the more important, since he has never actually visited these churches, that he writes and demonstrates these associations that he has. That there are going to be people who are hearing this letter who may not really know much about Paul himself, but they may not know Paul, but they may absolutely know Apelles or Epinetus or Rufus. And so the fact that Paul knows people they know is going to help them take Paul more seriously. And that's why Paul has this abundance of, uh, of, of people that he's listing here. He's not some strange other person. He is a Christian and an apostle that perhaps some of them just haven't had the opportunity to meet yet. Now, there have been some questions about this passage, um, in scholarship especially. Uh, many find it very challenging to believe that Paul could know so many people in Rome when, in fact, he's not been to Rome. And you start looking at certain people like, okay, Prisca and Aquila, uh, Eponidas, the first convert in Asia, but now he's being written to in Rome. And it may seem that these people seem more familiar in Ephesus than anything else. Uh, a lot of these names seem Jewish in origin. In fact, Paul will say that many of them are his kinsmen. Uh, which is hard to kind of reconcile at times with the fact that Claudius had worked to expel Jewish people and possibly Christian people from Rome, uh, which is alluded to in Acts 18 and verse 2 and something we actually hear in the Roman pagan historical literature. And so some have suggested this section really belongs to a letter to the church in Ephesus, but we shouldn't be too concerned about that because the, the saying that all roads lead to Rome is there for a reason. Uh, it's not surprising that there will be a lot of people that Paul had known previously in Asia Minor or other places who have now ended up in Rome. I mean, Prisca and Aquila only left Rome because of that edict. Uh, and edicts, of course, are only as good as they are enforced. Uh, perhaps the edict was well enforced at the beginning, but then there was laxity and Jewish people returned to Rome. Perhaps the uh, edict itself had just faded away when Claudius uh, went away, and so now they're back in Rome. And so we shouldn't be surprised that there is a lot of movement of people and that Rome would be an epicenter of where people would end up in that movement because it was the largest city, the most dynamic city in a lot of ways, and therefore not surprising that people would uh, end up there. Now, uh, we need to be uh, aware of that controversy just for our understanding, but it shouldn't certainly bother us. So now we can get into the text. And we begin the text with somebody who is not in Rome, admittedly, and that's Phoebe. And Paul is commending her uh, for a reason. Uh, she is in Cancreae. Uh, we're going to talk about that also. Uh, Phoebe is called a diacone and a prostatis. And he is asking the Roman Christians to receive her in a way that is worthy of saints and to give her whatever she needs. Diacone is the Greek word that is used for a servant or the office of a deacon. And there's a lot of controversy as to what the meaning is here. And that controversy is, uh, unfortunately, goes all the way back to the beginning just because of the vagary in terms. Paul would speak of himself using a similar term for a servant and many others without any suggestion that they were fulfilling the office mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So in Romans 15.8, he himself has talked about uh, himself as that kind of minister or servant. Colossians 4.7, 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 2. Now, we do have witness in early Christianity, in the 2nd century and afterward, of the office of a deaconess, women who were entrusted with ministering to the needs of fellow women. Uh, the early commentators Origen and John Chrysostom both consider Phoebe to be ordained to the office of deaconess. 
On the other hand, uh, Origin and John Chrysostom are also both uh, known for uh, retrojecting what they think are apostolic protocols onto the period of the apostles when such things did not exist in the time of the apostles. Uh, the whole hierarchy of the of the bishops and, and things of that nature uh, for Origin, infant baptism, things of that nature. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, challenges, a lot of assumptions going on here, but the fact of the matter is, in the end, uh, the vagary of terminology means we just cannot draw any firm conclusions about whether Phoebe was recognized in the office of a deaconess or is being commended as a faithful servant of God in Christ as a part of that congregation. So it could be a servant, it could be a deaconess, we just can't know for certain based upon the amount of evidence that we have in the text, and therefore anything further is just unfortunately speculative, even though we would well, like to know. Uh, Prostatus strongly suggests, as, as translated the English standard, that she is a patron of the church in Cancreae, Paul, and other Christians. Patrons are those who have some amount of wealth, who are able to provide support for the clients that they have. As with all things Roman, they're normally male. But there are wealthy women who could become patrons in their own right. And this is not even extraordinary in Christianity. Jesus himself was sponsored by the wealth of certain women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, wife of Huzas, the steward of Herod, and Susanna, and other women in Luke 8 and verse 2 that were providing sponsorship, having pro provide the food for the, for the money for the food and the mission uh, of going on here. And so we should absolutely believe that Phoebe is a woman of standing and wealth, and that she used these to advance God's purposes. Now the fact that Paul is commending Phoebe here, and that she's from Cancreae, gives us a very strong suggestion that, in fact, Phoebe is the one delivering the Roman correspondence. Uh, Cancreae is uh, one of two villages uh, that kind of uh, are on either side of Corinth. Cancreae is on the Saronic Gulf, which is the eastern port of Corinth. So the side facing uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. It has a companion village, which is Lechion, to the west on the Corinthian Gulf, which uh, faces the rest of Greece, but really toward Italy. And there's a lot of trade that would pass over that isthmus of Corinth there, because, uh, that would be offloaded in, in Cancrea and brought to Lechion, or vice versa. The fact that there is a church in Cancrea and a church in Corinth tells us that uh, there are many churches going around here, and churches in the suburbs, quote-unquote, already exist at this time. And it would be important we look at other things going on here in the Roman letter. But it's not hard to imagine, again, we don't have any firm evidence for this, but it's not hard to imagine that Phoebe is involved in trade and would be traveling to Rome for some reason. And so Paul is giving her the letter to take with her because uh, that letter needed to go there anyway. And it would also serve as this um, means of introduction where he expects that the Roman Christians to provide what she needs, uh, even though they don't know who she is, because she's a Christian, a fellow sister in Christ, and to say she's a patron, that she has been the help of many other people, so you need to help her. And that really t speaks a lot to the shared uh, mutual obligation. And when we say take care of her, make sure she has lodging and food, and she's well-provisioned for her journey, and any other forms of protection that might need to take place uh, considering the circumstances. So that is how this section begins. Then we begin the true greetings in verse 3 through 5 with Prisca and Aquila. And he commends them as fellow workers in the Lord, proving willing to endanger their lives for his sake, uh, and that not just he, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks for him. Uh, Prisca is also Priscilla. Uh, it's, a, it's a Latin name, and so is Aquila. 
A fellow worker is a way that Paul will speak of those who work with him in evangelism, in Colossians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 3. And Paul had met them in Corinth, and their fellow Jewish people who had left Rome because of the edict that had been established earlier, and they were fellow tent makers. And so he dwelled with them and, and plied the trade with them. Uh, we are not told if they were already Christian, but they converted if they had not already been uh, Christians, and they helped with the work in Corinth. They went on into Ephesus. One of the things that we kind of easily neglect there in Acts 18 is that Paul goes to Ephesus, but he's got business he needs to attend to in Antioch of Syria. And so he doesn't stay there very long, and he doesn't really do any real preaching there. So he goes down to uh, Antioch, and then he will eventually make his way back through Galatia and come back to Ephesus, where he does the work we see in Acts 19. But Prisca and Aquila remain there in, in Ephesus, and they're the ones who hear Apollos in the synagogue and explain to him the way more accurately. And it's Apollos that they are very influential in converting. Uh, now, in the honor culture of the day, it's significant that Paul mentions Prisca first. And that uh, when they take Apollos aside, it's Prisca and Aquila. Uh, not just the fact that alphabetically you'd want to say Aquila and Prisca. Uh, the fact that her name is first is marking her out as having higher status. Either higher social status or higher activity status and service. Either way, we don't know uh, more specifically beyond the fact that she is considered the one in higher place of prominence than he is. And that is significant and that needs to be noted. <clears throat> we don't know exactly what the situation is in which Aquila and Prisca endanger their lives for his sake. Uh, it might have something to do with that Ephesus trial that is in 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul despaired of life, uh, but was able to escape somehow. The churches of the Gentiles are giving thanks to them, very likely because they have proven hospitable to Christians in all sorts of places. That if you are a Christian, and you are from Antioch and Syria, and you are in Ephesus, with, you, could, you would have stayed with Prisca and Aquila, or they have refreshed you in some way. And so these are people who are known by all kinds of Christians in all kinds of places who give thanks for them. Now, there is a church in their house, likely means that their whole household had converted. And that they had the kind of means to have a household, which, you know, a lot of times we want to think of as children. It's not that children weren't a part of it, but households very much about domestics, servants or slaves in the ancient world. It also could mean that a congregation is meeting in their house. Maybe it's their household and a few others. And this is where it's important for us to note that where Paul wrote to the church of God in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, in Rome... Romans 1 and verse 7, he writes, to those who are in Rome, to all that, all the people in Rome, which might well have been uh, distributed in many churches throughout the city. And Rome was certainly large enough to have uh, many churches. And so we can imagine various house churches meeting uh, in various parts of town and in its suburbs. Uh, any attempt to try to reconstruct that in some kind of network of house churches that were considered part of a greater metropolitan church are, is completely speculative at this point. Uh, by the time of Clement, maybe 15, 20 years later, we see uh, the church in Rome uh, rides the church in Corinth. Uh, so there might have been some kind of consolidation. Or again, maybe there is a church in Rome, and then we have these suburban uh, churches that are being mentioned in these other places. We're not sure. After Aquila and Priscilla, we have a message for Eponidas in Romans 16.5, who is beloved of Paul, the first fruit of Asia to Christ. Asia, whenever he's spoken of, is the Roman province of Asia, where Ephesus is. Uh, whether that's because Eponidas was in Pentecost 
on Jerusalem and was a convert there, or the first convert in Asia itself uh, through the work most likely of Prisca and Aquila is unknown. Uh, maybe the latter uh, might make more sense uh, than the former. Uh, that he is beloved by Paul indicates a decently close relationship, that he knows Eponidas, Eponidas knows him, and of course is one of the first converts in Asia would have worked with Paul for some amount of time. His name is Greek. We don't know anything else about him. Uh, Paul then greets Maria. Uh, she bestowed a lot of labor on them. The Romans have a name like that, but it normally translates Miriam uh, in the New Testament, a common Jewish female name, especially in Palestine. We don't know what kind of labor she worked in. It was known to the Christians in Rome, uh, and it was likely spiritual in nature. Then there's Andronicus and Junia in verse 7. Paul greets them, considers them his kinsmen, fellow prisoners, of note among the apostles, and in Christ before Paul. And we have to say this outright. Junia is female. Uh, there have been attempts in the past to render the name Junius and therefore try to make her out to be a male. That has no basis in the text. And it speaks to the discomfort of those in the past who saw a female name and that she was of note among the apostles. And it is lamentable that that is even something we have to mention. Uh, they are likely husband and wife, because anything else would have been somewhat scandalous. And they have a mixed name situation. Andronicus is, is a Greek name, Junia is Latin. That they are kinsmen, uh, they certainly are fellow Jewish people. Uh, to believe they're anything else is speculative, and the fact that he will speak of others as kinsmen probably is an identifier that they are, are Jewish. Uh, but we shouldn't assume that the only people he mentions that are Jewish are those who are kinsmen. I mean, we know Prisca and Aquila are because of Luke's testimony in Acts 18, and Paul did not call them kinsmen here. Uh, but he's definitely thinking about that more certain people than with others. Uh, fellow prisoners should probably be taken literally. That at some point they were imprisoned for the Lord Jesus, and maybe with Paul himself in some context. Uh, we don't know. Of note among the apostles, of course, is the great controversy. And it can be read grammatically one of two ways. Uh, it can be read as two people who maintain a good reputation among the twelve apostles, that they are of note among the apostles and they are separated from, or that they, it can be read as Andronicus and Junior are notable as apostles. Uh, it can go either way. That a woman would be considered a notable apostle was seen as extraordinary even to many ancient commentators like John Chrysostom. But we need to be clear again, just like with Phoebe, so with Junia. The nature of that apostleship is not specifically defined. An apostle is somebody who is sent. Uh, the twelve apostles had a special dispensation of authority. Paul is kind of incorporated into that as well, and that's because they have seen Jesus in the resurrection. Uh, and, and that's from Acts 1, 22, and for Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Paul says that Andronicus and Junia were in Christ before him, but he doesn't say how long. And we don't know about any particular commission that Andronicus and Junia were given. And so we're again in this very frustrating situation where we're given this tantalizing glimpse, but there's so much speculation that kind of goes well beyond what we're told. We're not told anything definitively about the nature of their apostleship and what that looks like and what that would mean for the work they were doing beyond the fact that it was notable. Uh, Paul commends them both as having been Christians before him, therefore they're most definitely in Jerusalem, considering that the faith was kind of anchored there in Jerusalem there. Uh, so they have traveled around as well. We don't know where they've been traveling beyond Jerusalem and Rome. Um, some speculation they may have been fellow members of the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, since their names are uh, Greek and, and, and Latin. Um, they may have been part of that, and that's where they knew Paul. We don't know. There's so much we'd like to know we don't know. Um, 
did they see Jesus in the resurrection? Were they disciples from that far back? We don't know. We just don't know. Then we have a series of people, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Stachys, and Apelles, in verses 8 through 10. Uh, Ampliatus is Paul's beloved in the Lord, Urbanus a fellow worker in Christ. Stachys is beloved of Paul, and Apelles is approved in Christ. Um, there's therefore indications that there's a decent close connection to Ampliatus and Stachys, maybe also of Urbanus and Apelles as well. But if nothing else, these latter two are commended for their labor and their standing in Jesus. Now, Ampliatus and Urbanus are common Latin names for slaves. And therefore, they might be slaves, or they may have accomplished the rank of freedmen. A uh, freedman, by the way, when we use that term, a freedman is not somebody free from birth. It is somebody who has been freed. Either they had purchased their freedom, or their owners uh, just uh, gave them their freedom. And to be a freed person was its own status in society. Uh, it is distinct from being slave. It is also distinct from being born free. Stachys and Apelles are Greek names for what it's worth. Then we have greetings of the household of Aristobulus. Um, therefore, his household, they that are of Aristobulus. It doesn't need to include Aristobulus himself. It certainly indicates that the slaves and freedmen of his household uh, may have uh, are, are, are Christians. Uh, we don't know about Aristobulus himself. There's some speculate that it might be the same Aristobulus who is a Herodian prince who lived in Rome, but we can't, of course, determine that with any amount of definitiveness. Herodian uh, is greeted who is a kinsman, who is Jewish, like with Andronicus and Junia. Uh, the fact his name is Herodian might indicate he had been a slave in the house of Herod and likely now a freedman, but again, can't know that for certain, know nothing else about him. Uh, Paul then greeted they of Narcissus that are in the Lord. Uh, interesting contrast with the household of, of Aristobulus. Uh, they that are of the Lord in the house of Narcissus, uh, that maybe there are more Christians in Aristobulus's household than in Narcissus's. Um, some of the ancients believe Narcissus would be an elder in Rome. Uh, some scholars suggest that it might be a very known, well-known freeman who was very wealthy named Narcissus and that his house is in view. But, you know, it's a city of a million people. There could be other guys named Narcissus who have households. We don't know. Uh, very much a Greek name. But we don't even know if he's a Christian. Uh, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis are greeted as those who labor in the Lord. Persis has labored much in the Lord. Uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa are matching names and therefore are imagined to be twin sisters. Persis was a common name for slaves from Persia, and it's feminine. So she is a slave or freedwoman who had originally come from uh, Persia. Uh, Paul then greets Rufus as chosen the Lord and his mother, uh, who Paul says is his own. It's a strange way of talking about your blood brother. So it's more likely that Paul looked at Rufus's mother as more of a spiritual mother, as one who nourished and sustained him in the faith and provided for him in some various circumstance. Now, we have to be very clear about something. There's a very strong tendency to conflate all New Testament characters with similar names. So if you see the you know, same name, people want to think it's the same person. That's how Mary Magdalene was associated with Mary, uh, the sister of Martha, uh, and others in, in, the, in the Gospels and things of that nature. Uh, so we need to be careful about that, but... The fact that there is a close relationship between Rufus's mother and Paul means it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to identify Rufus here in Rome with the Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene, in Mark 15:21, and therefore getting us all the way back to uh, events going on surrounding Jesus' death, uh, which is compelling, but again, we can't know for certain. We then have greetings to Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren, and it seems to be a particular congregation. 
uh, or people that he knows from a particular congregation in the way that he's framed that there. Uh, the names are mostly Greek. Uh, Origen, again, from about 200 time period, uh, tries to identify, 250, uh, identifies Hermas here as the author of the Shepherd of Hermas, which is extremely unlikely because by common confession and in the middle of the second century, it was said that the Shepherd of Hermas was written then, uh, which would be a century after Paul wrote to the Romans. And so very unlikely that this is the very same Hermas. Uh, Origen is just doing that conflating thing, uh, seeing a name that he knows and a name here in the text. Although, um, who knows, it could be a descendant of this Hermas. We can't know for certain. Then there's Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and sister, Olympus, and the brethren, which seems to be another congregation. Uh, maybe there's a husband and wife, who would be Philologus and Julia, and their household of believers. Uh, the, all the other names are Greek, except for Julia. Julia is Latin. And then he concludes by wanting them to greet one another with the holy kiss, and that the churches of Christ uh, greeted them. So what can we say here about what's going on with uh, Romans 16 and 3 through 15? Uh, we have 24 Christians identified by name and many more alluded to in households. A lot of the names are Greek, and it shows that the faith was spreading among the Greek-speaking population of Rome. And the fact there are some Latin names shows the word was also heard among some Romans. Uh, not a few of the Christians were enslaved or had previously been enslaved and remained in the freed persons category. Uh, at least eight of those 24 are women, and the allusion is made to at least two more. Uh, the sister of um, uh, Nereus and Rufus's mother. And they're praised very highly for their labor in the Lord. And Paul knows these people by name and has had a lot of interaction with many of them. Prisca and Aquila we know and many others. And we can feel that emotional warmth. And we can only imagine what Paul is feeling uh, when he's dictating this to uh, Tertius, and the, the warm remembrances and reminders he had of the work that they had done together and the times they had spent together and the love they shared with one another, and also the feelings that, that uh, Prisca and Aquila and Eponidas and Andronicus and Junia and Ampliatus and Urbanus and Apelles and others would have felt hearing this and, 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 and their remembrances of their experiences with Paul and the warmth in that reminder. And so, yes, these are very easily you know, looked at as historical curiosities that we just kind of read over quickly. But these are real people. They were some of the intended audience of the letter. They're fellow saints in the Lord. These are our spiritual ancestors in a very real way. And it helps really to humanize the letter and the scriptures. Paul did not write Romans out in the ether as a theological tractate for you know people to just consider later on. He wrote it to people that he knew and he loved. And he wrote it to some people he didn't know very well but whom he loved. And whom he wanted to see and he really wanted to get to know and share in the Lord. And it reminds us that's how God has always communicated to, to he's communicated with people to people. And it's always had that kind of, that, that connection there, where there is that love and that desire to glorify God and to share together. And so, even though we have almost 2,000 years of, of distance in time, we have met many of the Christians in Rome now. We should be encouraged by their presence and their example, and should take it to heart and find ways of encouraging others that we have known in the Lord, and to speak highly of them and to praise them. And especially with the way this list works out, uh, we absolutely need to recognize the influence and power of the work of the women. And look, we've seen already 
why this passage is one of the main ones in contention about how women uh, are to uh, work in the church. And we've seen why with uh, Phoebe and, and, and Junia, and what does it mean for them to be in the, in the situations they're in. But there's something that should be beyond disputing contention, that Paul has commended a lot of women here. And he has seen them as joint participants in the faith, remembered them for their faithful service and work in ministry, and he appreciated how they had supported him in his work. And it's a reminder, I think, also that the work of service in the Lord goes well beyond the assembly. And the work of women in spiritual service, ministry, and support is critical for the healthy functioning of the church and to advance God's purposes in Christ. And it goes well beyond what happens when the church is gathered together. That sisters in Christ are not second-class citizens in the kingdom. That we need to recognize them for the work in the Lord that they do, to commend them as the mothers and the sisters in the faith that they are, to honor them as joint participants in the grace of life, to recognize their, their great power and value in the sight of God. So we've met many of the Christians in Rome in this way, and we've seen how Paul has worked with them and spoken of them fondly. We have seen that God's word has come to people, Christians who lived and labored, and that we should really be encouraged by their example. We can see how sisters in Christ were joint participants in that work. They were honored and celebrated. They were not second-class citizens in the kingdom. And we should spend some time here to appreciate these examples of the Christians in the past, to see why it's important to greet one another in the Lord and to commend one another in the Lord and to think fondly of those times that we have shared in the Lord and to celebrate and commend one another in the faith that we can glorify God in Christ. Uh, let us uh, go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for you and your love and care, your provision for us. Uh, we're thankful for the loyalty you've displayed toward us. We're thankful for Jesus and the life that you've given us in him and the redemption we have in him and the hope of resurrection we share in him and the kingdom that we can participate in, that you have uh, sealed us in through the one spirit. We pray and thankful for that spirit and for the strength you provide us in him. And we pray uh, for wisdom and discernment in the spirit to accomplish your pur purposes. We're thankful for the word by which we may come to know you and by which now we have also come to know many of the Christians who were in Rome. We are thankful for their example, Father. We pray that they are resting in, in you as they await the resurrection of life and we look forward to spending eternity with them in the resurrection. We pray, Father, that we will be encouraged by their example and that we will work to encourage one another and to greet one another in the faith and to strengthen and sustain one another in the faith and to jointly work to glorify your name and to accomplish your purposes uh, and that we all can celebrate together in that resurrection of life. We're mindful of those who are ill. We pray that you would heal them, that you would strengthen and sustain uh, all people in distress and trial that you would provide for those who are in need to preserve life in the face of disaster, and that your justice and righteousness would flow in the land. We look forward earnestly for that day of resurrection where we can all spend time before you and glorify you and, and to share in that new heavens and new earth. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're thankful for you and your faith, and we would love to encourage you in any way that we can. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, if you have a prayer request, if you'd like to learn more about us, please uh, let us know in the comments. Please subscribe to us where you found us, and please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on our social media on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We again thank you, and we look forward to encouraging you again soon, and may the Lord bless and keep you until then.